In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Our sponsor this week is Prep Dish. Now, Prep Dish is really interesting. It's a little bit different than those other meal services that are out there. Maybe you heard about on other podcasts. It is a healthy subscription-based meal planning service. So basically, when you sign up, you get an email every week with a full grocery list and instructions for prepping a week's worth of meals ahead of time. I tried it out. I tried the paleo meals for a week. It was really fun. It was really easy. It was just like an hour and a half or so of prepping the food on Sunday. I did all the shopping, got all the sauces ready. And then throughout the week, I was able to just throw these awesome, healthy meals together for my family in like no time at all. So with Prep Dish, you save time. You have amazing, healthy meals like smoky paprika chicken legs with roasted carrots. I made the paleo lasagna this week. Didn't think I was going to love it. I loved it. My kids loved it. Anyway, if you're interested in checking out Prep Dish, a special offer for listeners of These Are Their Stories, go to PrepDish.com slash stories. That's right. PrepDish.com slash stories. Save time. Be efficient. Eat healthy and stress-free. PrepDish.com slash stories. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Tara Ariano, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, where we take a look at network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired the shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode of either Criminal Intent, SVU, or The Mothership. Today, we're looking at Law & Order Original Recipe, Season 6, Episode 9, Corpus Delecti. Joining me to do just that is crime author and host of the podcast Crime Writers On, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Hey, Kevin. And rounding out the panel is our special guest from the Extra Hot Great Podcast and the Previously TV website. It's Tara Ariano. Hello, hello. Hey, you're, you're a podcast, Extra Hot Great. Do you do that like every day? We do it every Monday usually. And then we have a one main podcast that drops on Tuesdays and then we do four minis, but we record them all on the same day. So you're like busy as heck. Yeah, kind of. Now, it's yeah. A, people may not immediately recognize your name, but they must know your work because you founded television. Is it TV without pity? Television, television without, without pity. The greatest website of all time. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, that was us. And you were really like one of the first, you know, serious bloggers that made a big website about TV from the point of view of the fans. Yeah, I guess that's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. I just said it. I, can I can I actually just change your definition? Yeah. Tara, this is going to be embarrassing. I'm just going to throw it out there. Tara is the mother of Meta. 
we would not be here were it not for Tara Ariano and her <laughs> But if she like, donated an egg or something is that I don't know about? All I got to say is this. It was the first time I ever saw a smart, funny commentary on pop culture. I got fired from a job once because I was spending too much time Tara, this on is, that this website. is absolutely, tell the story. <laughs> this is absolutely true. This is, by the way, what would happen to Kevin if David Simon came on our Crime Writers podcast. <laughs> I never got fired for reading David Simon. <laughs> That's like because you were never caught. Uh, yeah, I worked at a company. This was back like in the late 90s, and um, I was obsessed with Television Without Pity. I, it was just a deep and comprehensive website, whether it was General Hospital or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which had its own like huge section by the way there's a little thing about you if you look at the archives and television without pity because there is a whole like local news it goes real deep oh. real deep and the writing was just incredible uh, I don't know if it was you Tara or one of your compatriots who said that the greatest thing about Shannon Doherty is that she disdains every piece of dialogue she's forced to say <laughs> um, that wasn't me but I wish it were yeah you guys, you guys were basically my you know I, I think we're about the same age and for a very very long time I have thought man that's that's the dream job there that's living the dream is just writing what you think about TV and she's the mother of all of it Oh, thank you so much. I can't take all the credit. Of course, my co-founders were Sarah D. Bunting, who I think you know of from True Crime Circles, and David T. Cole uh, was our producer, and both of them and I are all working together again on Previously.TV, along with a lot of former Television Without Pity writers, too. So if you liked that site, you will probably like Previously.TV as well. I do. (laughs) (laughs) So not only do we have the queen of snark, she also happens to be a big, obviously, TV expert. And Law & Order is something that is in your repertoire, right? Absolutely. I think I have seen every single episode. And as I was saying before we started recording, and as you must know, we TV and Sundance TV have marathons during the day. And for me, because I live in Hawaii, those start at like 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so it's, it's it's four for you. It's, you know, just it's, it's mid-morning for me. And it's perfect because I'm always at my desk and I don't have to pay 100% attention usually, but I just have it on for as many hours as there are law and order is back to back. So, yeah, I'm familiar with, with the franchise. Can I ask you just a quick question? Why do you think it is that you can have seen an episode yesterday and then watch mm-hmm. it again today? And I, that happens to me a lot <laughs> because they're on, they're on different channels. And, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of times where I'm like, oh, they're in the same cycle. Oh, well. And I just watch it again. I don't know. It's so comforting. There's something about it. The beats are so predictable in a wonderful way. That, that makes it sound like I'm denigrated. And it, of course, I am not. And uh, the wisecracks are great. I wouldn't go so far as to say you see something different every time you watch it or you notice something different. But, you know, if you're if you have it on sort of as the equivalent of the radio, you know, you glance up at different parts and you see different parts and it feels like a different episode, kind of. But, you know, these are your friends like, you know, them, you want to hang out with them, even if you just hung out with them and had them tell you the story six hours ago. (laughs) It's uh, it's still pleasant to hear it again. So to of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. <laughs> uh, yeah, Briscoe and Logan. I, I, everyone says that, right? No. Yeah, that's actually oh. my favorite. What do other people say? Well, a lot of people like Briscoe and Green, but they also like on SVU. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Stapler and Benson. Also tell us, who is your favorite 
prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. Uh, the ones that we see in this episode, in fact, McCoy and Kincaid. Although I do have, I have a soft spot for Ben Stone in his more histrionic episodes. <laughs> no crime, but uh, yeah, as an aggregate, I think Claire and Jack are, are the best. When you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content. Like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, The Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Okay, well, let's recap the first part of this episode, Corpus Delecti. Uh, Briscoe and Curtis get a call to a horse stable where Mr. Wicketts has passed away suspiciously. He may be an expensive show horse, but like white men, he can't jump. (laughs) The cops first suspect Mr. Wicketts was killed by his owner for the insurance money, or so Daddy Warbuck's daughter won't have to ride a loser. When they learn several high-priced horses from the same stable have died mysteriously, they zero in on breeder Lyle Christopher. He's put himself out to stud, (laughs) sleeping with rich older women and selling them crappy horses. After going from sugar mommy to sugar mommy, the team then finds that Christopher's new fiance, Ruth Thomas, has gone on a three-month cruise but she never got aboard the ship. Now, Rebecca, you thought that this episode of Law & Order broke format right from the first scene. It did. We first see uh, Briscoe and Curtis at the shooting range. And it is shocking with how many cop scenes there are in the show, how few times we actually see them doing cop stuff, like practicing shooting or, uh, you know, going for jogs, like the, the tropes that exist in like every other it's cop New York show. people doing New York, New York things. Yeah, they're usually drinking coffee out of those little Greek cups or they're like, you know, strolling through the park or they're like chatting up with some like doormen. You don't actually see them like at the shooting range doing cop stuff. And then, of course, there was the classic, you know, uh, Briscoe thing is sort of pull the targets close. And of course, he hasn't even like hit the target. And Curtis <laughs> has hit like, you know, 40 bullseyes. Not a surprise there if you look at the, at the two of them. But I, I did think that was a little bit of a format breaker. I'm glad you you backed up to that because that was the first thing I was going to say. This is a, a rare cold open that starts with the cops rather than someone finding a body. Um, and uh, yes, it is. It's very endearing to see the difference. You know, the the generation gap sort of highlighted between the two of them. That Curtis is great at shooting, and Briscoe pretends his goggles are distorted because in the very next scene, when they actually go to the crime scene, we see that Curtis just wants to bag on the case, and Briscoe is the one who knows there's something here that's worth investigating because he's old school. He's natural police, as they say on the wire. So he, he's natural police, but he was like surprisingly sweet and sensitive to the horse having been killed. Like he's like a cynical guy who can like step mm-hmm. over the body of a hooker and make like a snarky remark. Well, he never put a lot of money down on a hooker. But but he has exactly. Yeah. That's right. That's his personal connection to the case that helps him take it personally. But like in all 456 episodes of Law and Order, has there ever been a cause of death like this where they stuck a wire in the <laughs> mouth and anus and then turned the electricity on? Probably on SVU. I bet that's <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. Probably on SVU. There's nothing depraved that hasn't happened on SVU. I mean, there was something close in the one the the uh, episode of Mothership that's like from the first season maybe with Frances Conroy where she's like a dominatrix. And there's something in that one that involves a gag maybe, but I don't recall it enough to uh, to take a stand either way. But yeah, there's some weird sex stuff on regular Law and Order. 
shorter, but not not a ton, and certainly not a horse. Now, at first, Curtis is is pissed that they're even doing this, and he gets a smackdown from Van Buren. You may remember he says, I didn't become a detective to investigate dead animals. Oh, come on, Wilbur. Somebody killed a horse. You're not going to let him get away with it, are you? What am I, in some kind of trainee program? You've got your assignment, detective. Fine. You want me to question the horse's friends and neighbors? Find out if maybe he was having some problems in his love life? It's a nothing case. Say something one more time. One more time. Right, right. Van Buren hates Curtis, and that's one of my favorite dynamics <laughs> on the really, show. Tara, do you really think that Van Buren hates Curtis, or is that just extra textual? I think she warms up to him over the years, but this, as I recall, is like early in his tenure on the show. This might be his first season. Yeah, and she um, loves she loves Briscoe. Like the two of them yeah. are like two peas in a pod, and she has so much disdain because he's like a little bit smarmy and he like always is like real eager and I just like it and I love the shade that she throws at him I love it it's like she's like for me the Greek chorus sort of throwing shade at the guy who's going to end up being Julia Roberts boyfriend <laughs> yeah I think she, she I agree that she loves Briscoe I don't know that I'd go so far as to say that she hates Curtis across the board she certainly does in this scene but he does have a bit of the know-it-all about him and I think that rubs her the wrong way because he doesn't always respect her authority properly possibly because she is a woman uh, possibly <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt now we have a super rich asshole named Richard Branson <laughs> Yeah. did nobody know there was already a super rich asshole named Richard Branson <laughs> they may have because they threw a D in the middle of his name it's actually Brandison but you would never ever know that unless you looked him up on IMDb but yeah but does the real Richard Branson have a daughter who can't act that's the question <laughs> you, probably you, mean, mean you weren't moved to tears like she was talking about how she could feel like the bones riding beneath her or Frisco something Frisco was somehow moved to tears all I kept thinking during that scene was it was like bad D.H. Lawrence that's somebody's like niece like masturbatory <laughs> horse riding no that's like somebody's niece who got cast in the part you know what's interesting about Law and Order is that little little Miss Wolf is that you're saying it's Dick yeah. Wolf's I, I know that I've made this point before, but like I, Law and Order gets like a little bit older, like in the later 90s when it gets a little more like, you know, really hits its stride, becomes a little more gentrified. You start seeing really seasoned actors on the show, not just like famous, famous people, but like soap opera actors, people who are working yeah. actors in New York who are like really good actors. And in these early episodes, it definitely feels to me this sometimes is like... This is season six. This I, isn't early. It's early enough. It's relatively early for a show that lasted 7,000 seasons. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> it still feels like open casting, you know, like, we need a girl who looks like she can ride a horse. Damn, I would not want to be the casting director on Law & Order every week. <laughs> I need 15 people. Each one of them's got six lines. <laughs> but that's part of the, you know, the, the thing about Law & Order is that it's a lot of New York people doing New York things. But instead, we have all these people upstate being questions and they're doing things but they're just doing it a little slower in bigger houses. Oh, so it always works. So this is a good example of the gentrification of Law & Order like you know sort of the late 90s kind of like the early 2000s we sort of start seeing brownstones and Putnam County and like horses and like women in silk blouses instead of sort of like the grittier uh, suspects and the, and the grittier perps and the grittier witnesses. And then we also of course see like this sort of yokel town which isn't really yokel town. You see like some cars speeding by it looks like they just set up a little set in Central Park and like we're filming that guy in the paddock you know pretending to be all all country but whenever they leave town it's it's usually like an interesting scene for sure Tara, what'd, yeah. you, what'd you think about that sort of let's get out of the city and go Green Acres? Yeah, it's it definitely is something that you, you know, you could broadly divide, I think, all episodes of the show into ones about rich people being horrible and ones about poor people 
still just trying to get by and maybe like gang episodes sort of fit like they're kind of on the line. I mean, there are Silk Blouse episodes earlier in, or earlier than this, too, but they're usually about like the Masucci family and, you know, someone's niece or cousin or something or a politician's wife who doesn't know he was gay or whatever like it's but but there I, I think in a broad sense those are those are like the categories of law and order episodes and this one is great because it, it sort of straddles the line too it is about rich people getting taken but about someone who has has infiltrated their world and tricked them which you know in a lot of other shows you would sort of take his side but they do a good job of making him very unsympathetic way more so than the rich ladies that he swindled you know, I thought the dots leading to this insurance scam really convoluted. I mean, when they sat down and have to explain to Van Buren this to that to the other thing, and we even get an early appearance by Jack and Claire telling them that they have nothing. Could they have drawn a straighter line? I'll tell you, the one thing that didn't happen in this episode, usually the format is this. And Tara, you can correct me because you you know, probably have the proportions all like mathematically calculated. <laughs> but the formula is usually that the cops think they have the answer and like so the crime is sort of like quasi solved early in the episode but then how could we have gotten it so wrong because by the way it's actually this whole other thing and that either spins off a second story which is like a whole different storyline right. where the, the, the beginning of the thing was just a conceit and like sort of the MacGuffin as you like to say or it turns into the, the prosecutors telling the cops like you need to do more investigating because this is all wrong and, and it turns into a whole thing but this episode was very linear that way it did take a while to sort of connect those dots but they went to the insurance agency and then they had to learn about the methods of death it, it for me broke format that way the first half was about cops the second half was about lawyers there wasn't that kind of like the red herring stuff that very often happens no but tara i think that you know when i think of law and order that it is usually chocolate and then peanut butter that you a lot of time you don't even mm-hmm. see the cops even like testifying at trial it is two separate shows and we don't expect to see the da's until half past the hour and we're seeing them earlier, and then we're seeing Briscoe come back in the second half. And am I wrong? Did it- You're wrong. <laughs> Usually, there's a handoff, like halfway through the first hour. Yeah. And by the way, we see the cops testify a lot in the court scenes. Usually, the cops very often, not usually, very often, the cops make a little coda. See, I don't end. believe you. So I'm going to ask Tara because she's the expert. <laughs> I don't know about a lot. It does seem like something that doesn't happen that often. And usually, when it does, it's because someone has a personal stake in the case. Like, for example, the one where Logan has a connection to a priest who molested him when he was a kid and one of his victims is turned up dead. So that was one where obviously he, you know, Logan can testify to what his childhood was like and how the priest intersected and what that would have had to do with the murder victim. Or when it's going to be a gotcha, like when McCoy has to set up Briscoe and make him look dumb for the sake of the case because they don't agree. Or or no, I'm thinking of, of Curtis. There was one where he uh, he has to break rank with the cyber stalker. Right. And sometimes it's, it's the defense attorney that asked the cop to testify and the yes. cop has to defend you know that their work. Yeah, but I don't. I agree with. I agree with you. It doesn't. I don't think it comes up that much on the show. I wouldn't say it's rare, but I wouldn't say it's common either. Now, how hard can it really be if you're a police detective to find out if an old woman got on a boat for three months? <laughs> <laughs> well, what year was this episode? It was a long time ago. Right. It was, it was like '96. It would have been right right around 96 or 97. Right, we're talking pre-iPhone, we're talking like pre all that stuff. We're talking, you can't like just Google, like is this boat in this place Yeah, but but even the Titanic could do ship to shore communications, (laughs) you know? It's just like, have you seen Ruth? Hello? Yeah, yeah. 
It, it, it did it did seem a little bit protracted. You know, it's funny because um, this episode was not showy. Like, there are a lot of episodes that sort of have elements that are, like, designed to be like, ooh, DNA, or ooh, you know, investigative prowess. This episode was sort ooh, of... Ooh, horses getting electrocuted yeah, in the ass. Come on, know. that's pretty showy. It, it, it felt like a lot of people in barn coats to me. It didn't feel as, <laughs> as, as showy as it, as it often feels. This is the L.L. Bean episode? <laughs> no, it's, it's, like the, it's like the barber episode of Law & Order. Yeah, I agree. It's, they could have done more with the ship. They don't. It's, it's a lot of uh, people in the squad room. Even though, though they do make the ship to shore call, we only see the one side of it. That's right. We, we also never see the victim, except in that one quick photograph glimpse like there's almost no connection to the victim in this story like very often oh you know why she's missing <laughs> exactly but we but she's not the main victim that we see at the beginning right like there's no like central victim and then we meet the grieving you know like in other episodes that we've seen recently like the grieving parents who've like lost their son like in an unjust yeah. shooting or whatever like, there's none of that sort of familial stuff that makes you give a shit about like the person who may or may not be dead it's just sort of like the pursuit of whether or not she's dead so in that way I mean it's not showy there isn't this big display of all that stuff yeah that's a good point because we do meet her friend who gives her more backstory about the relationship and that they were breaking up. She was planning to sue Christopher and all that stuff. But it's certainly much easier to empathize with Mr. Wicketts, who we actually do see <laughs> his corpse, even if the cops can't interview his friends. You know, it's not his fault he dropped a leg. He's a horse. He didn't ask for any of this. He's he's a far more sympathetic victim, in my opinion. I, I really would have liked to have been at the trial when the expert came on to explain about the warm horse feces, about how that was a clue. <laughs> Rebecca, do you know what ruins 35% of crime scenes in America? I don't know. It would be CSI people lying on the bed because they saw it's a Casper mattress and ruining the crime scene. 35% sounds it's like a, a lot. It's a true fact. You could look it up. It's because Casper mattress is obsessively engineered and it comes at a shockingly fair price. Shocking. It is shocking. If you have never ordered a Casper mattress, it comes directly to you comes in a box, Yep. and when you open the box, it's like one of those life rafts that just kind of <laughs> pop open. Not quite like that. They give you a nice little tool to open it with. It actually opens nicely, but it is pretty incredible. Yeah, and the mattress itself is like the right mix of latex and supportive memory foam, so you, you get like that perfect balance between sink and bounce. Super comfortable sleep. Is that why Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015? It has to be. <laughs> it has to be. As you know, our teenage son sleeps on one. He loves it. And free shipping on Casper mattresses and free returns to the U.S. and Canada. So when you get a Casper mattress, you can try it for 100 nights, risk-free. Don't just do the thing like you do in the store where you lay down on it for like a, a minute and a half and say, oh yeah, I'm going to strap that to the roof of my car and not kill anybody on the highway. <laughs> so if you go to caspermattress.com slash law and order, you can get $50 off any mattress purchased there using offer code Law and order terms and conditions apply. Casper mattresses made in America. Crime scene investigators love lying on them, even though they shouldn't. Go to casper.com slash law and order and use the offer code law and order to get yours today. 
Let's take a look at part two of the episode. Uh, Jack and Claire use Christopher's many civil lawsuits as the basis for a low-level fraud prosecution, but it's really a backdoor to collect more evidence about Ruth Thomas's disappearance. They learned the day Ruth was supposed to set sail, Christopher took his own sailboat to sea despite a storm warning. He even asked the harbor master to let him pull his car up to the slip so he could load something heavy aboard. The cops find Ruth's blood in the sailboat to flip Christopher's hired horse hitman. But at trial, the defense has evidence the blood came from a corkscrew mishap (laughs) and testimony that Ruth was deathly seasick and probably backed out of the cruise on her own. Frustrated with his prospects, Jack crosses the line during cross-examination and the judge declares a mistrial. But before they can go to trial again, Ruth Thomas's body is recovered by fishermen and we infer Jack intentionally caused the mistrial, hoping to buy time and find the body. You mean when they learned that in the shortest phone call that ever happens in the history of the world? <laughs> <laughs> Which is another favorite trope of mine on Law and Order. <laughs> Pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. Click. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, let's act it out, shall we? You be the phone ringing. Ring. Hello? Okay, yeah, I'll tell him. So that was the Long Island Sound Police Unit, and they just called to tell me that Ruth's body has washed up on the shore of the Long Island Sound. I mean, it's like the, the time right. it takes for him to say what was on At the phone. coordinates, 275. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They don't even say hello. It's like that's one little trope that always cracks me up. Well, yeah, I mean like when people call the 555 number? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we start the second half with Adam telling his lawyers that this is a nothing case, just like Curtis did. So do the writers keep doing this to build the conflict that this is an unwinnable case, or are they trying to counter the argument to convince us in the audience that this is the story and that we have to stick with it. Hmm. I mean, it works on both levels, right? They do have to make the point that there is something here worth pursuing because, as we discussed, there isn't a victim that we ever meet or see or learn that much about. So we have to get the the stakes in another way. And also, Adam thinks that every case is unwinnable, so that doesn't really tell you much. (laughs) He just hates his life and his job and them and the law and all of it. Like, he just doesn't want anything to do with any of it anymore. I think think there's also, like, um, the opportunity to just rile up. I mean, I think the writers need an opportunity to stir the McCoy outrage. Because if you don't have McCoy outrage, you don't have an episode of Law & Order. Well, what I love about the horse hitman is that they make him look all tough, you know, with the bald head and dressed in black, and he's kind of, you know, talking like he's uh, like a thug but he like just, he kills horses yeah he won't kill a person he in a way he's kind of a pussy hit man well you I know? Don't know don't you think like a like a horse hit man would like you know wear overalls or something like that I don't know I mean he didn't have to borrow a jacket to get into that restaurant so <laughs> <laughs> Now, for those looking for hidden clues about whether Jack and Claire were having an affair, there's this great scene at the coffee shop. Claire's filling in Jack about how Christopher was good at... horse training records are insanely complicated. He covered his tracks. Uh, He wasn't so cautious about his mating rituals. Should I be taking notes? Jack says, well, should I be taking notes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Tara, in your world, are Jack and Claire sleeping together? Oh, yeah, of course. Is this in question? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, although, although like years later, it was sort of confirmed, but, you know, it was never said during those seasons. So if you want to live in the world where they were just good friends like Mulder and Scully. I'll tell you, Tara, I have a confession to make. I am a late comer to this news, just like I was a late comer to the news that Mr. Rogers voiced all of the characters in the neighborhood of make-believe somehow. (laughs) 
I never figured that out. And I was a late comer to this news. Kevin told me this just a couple of years ago, about 15 years into my obsession with Law and Order. And when you know it, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. There we saw an episode the other day where Jack is sitting in the office with his shirt like completely untucked from his pants. And stands up and has to tuck his shirt back, like for no reason. For no, there's no possible he other was reason. Riding his motorcycle. <laughs> You're implying he got a blowjob in his own office. I think with more, the shades open. I actually think the more telling scene in this episode is like the little fight, the little testiness between Jack and Claire when he gets angry with her. I got the addendum to the forensics report on Christopher's car. Did you give it to Lynn? I just got it, Jack. Claire, help me here, please. I'm sorry, my transporter beam was down. Great. I've got Adam all over my back. I've got a killer who's about to bluff his way into an acquittal with a wink and a smile. You choose this moment to go into your wise-ass routine. Excuse me? Forget it. And her response is, excuse me? Like, that's what a girlfriend would say to a boyfriend. That's not what someone would say to their boss. Yes. Right. Well, the very next episode in this season is Trophy, the one with Layla Robbins as Diana Hawthorne. The previous, the last ADA that Jack had an affair with, and when she meets Claire on her own, she says they were sleeping together, and she basically puts Claire on blast and is like, well, you're sleeping with him too, aren't you? And Claire doesn't say either way, but, like, obviously she is. And you can tell from the way that episode ends too when she she says I thought you wanted me to she repeats the Diana Hawthorne justification of how they won the case and so it's like okay well that's the one that makes it I think the very clearest but once you know that you can for sure go back through the rest of the season prior to that point and see the breadcrumbs being laid and the motorcycle is another one yeah you can't not see it you can't unsee it it's it's like being told that every song by you two is actually about Jesus yes you can't unhear it (laughs) once you go back you're like oh (laughs) oh That's where the streets have no name. Oh, no. They keep, oh, my God. No. With or without you. Oh, no. <laughs> True fact. So, again, the blood in the boat because of this mishap with the corkscrew. This happens to the 1% quite a bit, right? It's very 1% crime, yes. It also happens at our house quite a bit because I drink a lot of wine. <laughs> in fact, I'm drinking wine right now. So how over the top does Sam Waterston go? I mean, if we had to have like a, like, like a Jack McCoy scale of 0 to 10. What would you call that? What would you call the Jack? The horse-a-meter? Because he always has that horse sort of when he gets really upset. Like his voice goes like he gets really like, you know. His head waves. <laughs> you can kind of hear. It's like, it's like the cat. You Mr. Wicked. It's like, it's like the hepburn meter It's almost yes. like it's like Catherine Hepburn when he gets really, yeah. really upset. Yeah. So this was, this was one of his better indignatious uh, monologues. Indignatious. Right? Indignatious? Did I fuck that <laughs> one up? Is that a word? I, yeah. It should be. He's it's indignant. He has of indignation. A, he has indignation. Oh, we're keeping that in. Oh my God, I'm like Sarah Palin. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> uh, but like, Tara, he's like, you know, again, this is one of his better, uh, I'm going to chew the furniture on this one. Well, he has to. I mean, we we find out at the end that was his plan. Like, he has to get up into a swivet to make it convincing in order to buy more time for the investigation to continue. So, yeah, the fact that he can calibrate it is interesting to learn because I wouldn't have necessarily thought that before, that he had that much fine control over his outrage. But, you know, now we know. We do know. He always does unravel. I mean, it's not unusual to see him unravel when he thinks he's going to lose. I mean, he, he has two modes. One is he either then delivers, like, the greatest, like witness uh, questioning of all time or the greatest closing statement of all time or he completely unravels and starts to drink scotch in his office. Like he, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those two things and you see that unraveling and you know, I, I just sort of thought like he knows he's going to lose and this is that mode of, of Jack losing it. Now I think in the final scene where we see Jack and Adam going through 
their upcoming docket and the general office work of the prosecutors. That's a uh, before they get the phone call. That's another break from format. Yeah. I think it's a nice book into the opening scene of this episode. Well, what do you guys think? Yeah, they're doing the business of being in the DA's office, which we never see. Scheduling cases, deciding what should go before what. And of course, they're talking about this case when they get the six second phone call, which is, <laughs> you know, that that's a little bit ham fisted, I think. It's a very convenient coincidence, certainly. But um, yeah, I like it too. You forget about the boring parts of the lawyering because those usually don't make it into procedural dramas. But some of it is just this sitting in an office, signing a paper and uh, waiting for the three second phone call that's going to change your life. Well, you know, the, the knock on the law and order franchises is that they're formulaic and in this one we see them tampering with the formula just enough to tell a a story in a slightly different way without losing any of the essence of what Law and Order is or, or to not be true to the characters. They fiddle with it a little bit. Is the next season the one where we get way more personal stuff about all the characters? That's the yeah, one where, yeah, that that I did not care for. And obviously others didn't either because it stopped. It was like only that one season and then it went back to what we know as classic law and order but this is a it's an interesting break and it's a different kind of case it doesn't start with a dead person it starts with this dead horse and you know the the reverberating effects of that are fascinating i think and i i appreciate the breaks and i appreciate the formula of both yeah i, I think svu is for the personal stories of the characters like that, that's why Way they more. made that's that, that's like why they made that show like yes like everybody reveals their trauma like on svu like I want to hear uh, Briscoe make divorce jokes. I don't want to actually hear about the real pain he experienced. <laughs> what his alimony check actually exactly. is. Exactly. I don't right. want to know that. I don't want to know that. How his child was traumatized. Eh, that's <laughs> none of my business. <laughs> It'll happen off screen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so Tara, I'm going to ask you not to respond because this is going to be for Rebecca. I have a trivia question. Okay. And then if you don't know, I'm going to bounce it over. But um, who sat second chair for the prosecution during this trial. Oh, oh God, oh God, we watched this like a week ago. Who sat second chair for the prosecution during this? I don't know. Tara, do you know? I don't, I didn't notice. It wasn't Jill Hennessy. Who was it? It was her twin sister, Jacqueline. Oh, yeah. the actress. The uh, Yes. Why? Well, she, Jill Hennessy, was doing a crossover episode with Homicide Life on the Street, and Shut she, up. along with a couple other actors, were in Baltimore. So to do the uh, you know the scene, basically they just had her twin sister sit in the chair. Amazing, and she was uncredited in the uh, in the episode. She's like the Lindsay and Sydney Greenbush of the Law and Order franchise. <laughs> Although if if you go back, there's like you know in the background, you know you see oh no, you know it looks it could you think it's it's Jill. There's like one shot when Jack McCoy is going over the top with this cross examination and he's being warned, and you see Claire sort of like get like a, you know make that face like oh this is going. I thought to myself, something's not right. She's not as tan. Yeah, there's just something <laughs> about it. It's just slightly off. A little like, bit off, yeah. Yeah, it was like, do the makeup art, the hairdresser not to, I don't know if it's Jacqueline. But. I don't know what her twin sister does for work. I have seen the pictures of the two of them together, and Jill definitely looks more like an actress than her sister. They look the same, but Jill looks like she's got people. You know she's got I mean? an assistant. <laughs> she looks just like she's got like a makeup person. She looks like she's got like a trainer. Like she's got people. Tara, do you have people? I don't have people. I wish. I wish I had people. How do we get people? We need people. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we have dogs. <laughs> <laughs> a dog I have. He is no use. <laughs> so this episode got its twists and turns from a true crime. So it's time for Ripped from the Headlines. You think you know who did you it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Ripped from the Headlines. This episode was inspired by the disappearance of candy company heiress Helen Brock. In 1977, the multimillionaire widow had just left a routine physical at the Mayo Clinic, but missed her fly back to Florida. She was never seen again. Brock's interests included horses, which is how she crossed paths with stable owner Richard Bailey. They became lovers. Bailey ran a racket targeting rich, older women, getting them to invest in thoroughbreds worth only a fraction of the selling price. It was part of a larger scam to collect insurance on jumpers sure to injure themselves during competition. Before her disappearance, Brock learned the three show horses she bought from Bailey for hundreds of thousands of dollars were basically worthless. Ten years after her disappearance, Bailey was sentenced to life in prison for defrauding Brock, but for no other crime against her. She was declared legally dead in 1984. Some have written she was killed by the Chicago mob, afraid she'd expose their con. Her case has officially remained unsolved. So that's the story behind the story ripped from the headlines. How close does the real story, Tara, sound to Corpus Delecti? Well, they don't mention anything about candy. That's the part I'm hung up on. Which candy was it? <laughs> what was the actual brand? I want to know. Instead of ping pong balls, they could have shoved some like hard candy up the horse's <laughs> nose, right? Yes. Were those originals? No. Um, yeah, I'm surprised that they ripped from a headline that was so far in the past. I mean, we never see that on SVU now. SVU, it's very much like of the moment. Sometimes it's it feels like... Too much of the moment? <laughs> yeah. It's a bit like weeks after or if something breaks, you know it's going to be on the show. Like when all that stuff happened with Jared Fogle last year, it's like, well, this is going to be an SVU. And of course it was. Uh, the Duggars. The Duggars. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's interesting that they sort of dug back into history. Uh, other than the mob connection, I think this is a pretty close uh, adaptation of the real life story. But both in, in TV and in real life, it seemed like the frustrating thing was not being able to find anything beyond the scam and not the murder or disappearance. Right, right. You know, which in in both cases, in real life and on the screen, was the stumbling point for the investigators. It sort of reminds me of like the, the Klaus von Bülow, Sonny von Bülow case. Like, she's not technically dead. Like, I mean, obviously, his, his, his verdict was overturned. If you saw the excellent movie Reversal of Fortune and you know all the details of that. But, like, it reminds me of sort of like one of these stories where... Except for the mob connection, which wasn't in this episode, and the dead horse, which was in the episode, like, is it difficult to relate or really give a shit about the bad things that happen to, like, really, really rich people? I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing that I was sort of left with. It's like, hmm. Well, that's why I keep wondering <laughs> whether what Curtis says and what Schiff says about this is a nothing. So if they're really not trying to play up like, hey, you think you're going to come here for like some brutal homicide. Mm. But this is a story about a horse and stick with it. Yeah, except because that, it's actually a really interesting crime, except that the DA's office usually is like all about 
pursuing the crimes that happen to rich people. They're like, do that all the time on the show where the cops are like, ah, oh, whatever. And they're like, no, this is important because his father is a big contributor to my campaign. Yeah, that's that's the element of a, of a usual rich person episode that's missing from this one is Schiff having a, a connection to someone he doesn't want to piss off. But then, I mean, the rich person was not the wrongdoer in this case. I yeah. went to prep school with the horses. Oh, can, can we just talk about just for one second something like the, the funniest phenomenon that I've like now Kevin is, is keeps pointing out to me the later episodes where Jack is running for DA and becomes a DA every scene with Jack he's wearing a tuxedo and is being pulled out of some event yeah <laughs> <laughs> totally life on the trail with Jack McCoy you know by the way in real life the guy got life for fraud Mm-hmm. And, the, and the judge said in the sentencing that it was that stiff because they couldn't prosecute him for murder. That's not okay. That's like OJ going to prison for 20 years for stealing his own sports memorabilia. I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't belong in prison, but like the sentence was wrong for that. Yeah, well, I will say that the guy Bailey, he appealed based on the what the judge said at sentencing and the appeal didn't go anywhere. However, this seems like a real dick wolf kind of thing to Prior do. Bad acts, yeah. To sort of like right the wrong that was done before. Tara, we see this all the time where in the real world there is the way the thing turns out and then sometimes on Law & Order, the verdict is what it, we all think it should have been. Yeah, it, sometimes it's the verdict and sometimes it's a vigilante. I mean, not so much on Law & Order, but a lot of times on SVU, even if justice isn't served, someone still ends up, like the, the wrongdoer ends up killed in their home or on the courthouse steps or something too. So yeah, justice is uh, is certainly um, violent often on, in the Law & verse. So yeah, it, I, I'm not surprised that they decided to fix this one versus what actually happened in real life. I, I would like to see a bunch of vigilante horses like come and trample <laughs> Lyle Christopher as he's walking out of the courthouse. So what's the name of the real the real perpetrator? What's the name of the real bad guy? Richard Bailey. Uh, was he a poor man's Robert Redford like Lyle Christopher was? I don't know. I never saw <laughs> a photograph of That's all I could think of. When I kept looking at that guy, I'm like, man, that's like, that's like the guy who people say looks a little bit like Robert Redford, but everyone knows he's the poor man's Robert Redford. But it's a great scam. I'm just going to sleep with a bunch of old, crusty women for their money and sell them horses that they don't know anything about. Yep. And then when the horses get killed, I'm going to collect some of By the, the way, cash. I have some news to tell you later about our art collection upstairs. Oh, shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to do it for us. Thank you to our... Our guest, Tara Ariano of Previously TV. Tara, if our listeners want to follow you on social media and on the internet, how can they do that? They certainly can. I am on uh, Twitter and Instagram, both of the same handle, Tara Ariano, T-A-R-A-A-R-I-A-N-O. And thank you so much for having me. This was a thrill. And Rebecca, how can listeners follow you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the same handle because I do everything Tara Ariano does. (laughs) (laughs) It's at Reb Lavoie. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. This podcast is not produced in conjunction with NBC Universal or Wolf Films. Clips were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thank you to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to see what episodes we'll be breaking down next, go to our website, lawandorderpodcast.com. We'll see you in two weeks. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime.
partners in in crime crime media. media. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.